Thank you today, Lord Jesus, for your spirit who is our counselor and our helper. So that whatever the need, the ever-present teacher is there to guide, and to counsel, and to help, and to sustain. So we say thank you for that. Now, Lord, we pray, we ask, we beg, Lord, that you would accomplish in us that which is pleasing in your sight. That you would sustain and help and grow. Bind us together in the unity of Jesus Christ. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That the mission you have given us will be front and center. As we set our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand. The Father. We pray against the effects of the evil one. We pray, Father, that you would cause the evil one to flee. And that any blindness or anything else, any scheme of the evil one that would rob us of glory and any effect of glory that you would remove, win the day, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're studying through First and Second Timothy. And uh, I would suggest if you didn't hear last week that you go and pick up those, uh, pick, pick up the notes on the blog and listen in on the interweb, it will uh, be worth your time. As I said last week, it doesn't matter who's saying it, Pinocchio can be reading the scriptures, and, and if the scriptures are taken in, it is our opportunity to behold glory. And so you need to hear, you need to understand verse 11 from last week because it really sets the pace and the tone of everything we're going to see and do in the rest of First and Second Timothy and Titus. This gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which we have been entrusted. Today we pop down verse 12 through 17 and we're going to see in this passage how Paul is an example of one who beholds this gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Because this person that we see in the life of Paul. As he puts himself forward as a picture. As an illustration of what the gospel does in people. Here, here's a piece of good news for you. He does in all of us. And so therefore the church is made up of people just like that. Okay. And so we're going to see that this morning. That's where we're going. That's what Paul has given us here in this correspondence. And so we want to stay in the text and we want to see the effects of this gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So I'm going to read verse 12 through 17 and, uh, and that'll, that'll get us launched. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 1 beginning in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, 
invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There is, embedded in the heart of our passage today, one of the great gospel texts of the apostolic church and of the Reformation. I've got a little funk right in here, and I'm not choked up, I'm not being emotional, I just can't talk. <clears throat> so, uh, i got a little cough drop going on, so pardon, pardon all that. Uh, the words of that text are familiar, and it's here, it's verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This single, this single sentence has been used to encourage countless souls on their way to Christ. It stands at the, as the front piece of the English Reformation because of its effect on a man named Thomas Bilney, the early church Reformation martyr in England. Thomas Bilney, Bilney known as Little Bilney, due to his diminutive stature, was born in 1495. Because he had a scholarly bent... He studied law at Cambridge and became a fellow at Trinity Hall in 1520. (coughs) But neither study nor ordination brought him to peace. Then he began to read the Latin translation of Erasmus' Greek New Testament. How's that for some devotional work for you? He began to read the Latin translation of Erasmus' Greek New Testament. And as Bilney described it, and when you hear his words, okay, this is Thomas Bilney's own words here, you ready? I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul. And he, he, he sort of asides himself here and says, Oh, most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. Just stop there for a second, and I want you to hear that, because probably for most of you in this room, as you read your Bible, as you read other books about the faith, it's usually not a book that changes the life. It's a sentence. It's a word. It's a paragraph. And Bill only says, as I chanced upon this sentence. And, and by the way, from the Christian worldview, there is no chancing. And he gets that. He's, he's writing for effect here. The Lord leads us in triumphal procession. And he leads us to those divine sentences and those words that bring about transformation. But Bill only speaking about verse 15 here says, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, almost sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. In 1 Timothy 1.15, and he, he quotes Erasmus here in his translation into Latin, it is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the chief and principal. He continues, this one sentence through God's instruction and inward working, and isn't that what the scriptures do? Inward working did so exhilarate my heart being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair that even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. After this, the scripture began to be more pleasant unto me than the honey of the honeycomb. What a glorious statement. This, I would argue that Bilney's conversion happened right here. I would argue this is when Cat became a believer. All of a sudden, 
My bruised bones leap for joy. And this, this sentence right here buried up in this section, all of a sudden the rest of the scriptures began to be more pleasant to me. More pleasant than the honey of the honeycomb. Thomas Bilney immediately became a central figure in a group of theologians who met at this place you may have heard of, the famous White Horse Inn, which stood on what is now the corner of King's Parade and Rose Crescent in Cambridge. And there, his group prepared for the Reformation in England. Bilney was arrested in 1527 and was forced to recant. But little Bilney couldn't contain himself and he set off preaching again in 1531. He was again arrested and he was tried and he was burned at the stake. His most famous convert, Hugh Latimer, who's in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you have that, go look him up became the most prominent preacher of the English Reformation. And he was inspired by Bilney's courage, and he reverently referred to him often as St. Bilney in his addresses. Latimer, too, died at the stake in Oxford in 1555. What a monumental effect 1 Timothy 1.15 has had. And well it should, because it gives us the gospel in miniature. There is no doubt whatsoever that it can make bruised bones leap for joy. What we have in this gospel of the glory of the blessed God transforms sinners into saints. That's what it does. When we behold glory, when the gospel is proclaimed and our eyes are lifted and blindness is removed and we behold glory... It transforms sinners into saints. Paul, who's writing this letter of instruction to Timothy, and and therefore, as we've covered already, to the entire church, is the example given at the outset of this letter as a display of what the gospel of the glory of the blessed God accomplishes. So let's take a look at it in some measure particularly in Paul and for the church at Ephesus, what the gospel of glory accomplishes. Let's take a look at what it accomplishes. And then we're going to take a look at how the gospel accomplishes what it does. And then we're going to take a look at why, in some measure, because we don't have enough time to fully unpack the why. We'll have until the Lord returns to study our Bibles together and unpack that together. But for what Paul gives us here in this little context some of the why the gospel accomplishes what it does. And finally, we're going to see in verse 17 the particular fruit of the gospel of glory and Paul's words to this pastor and this congregation. So as I studied through this, I've got a series of questions that help us to unpack the content of the passages that we have today. Oh, glory. Thank you, Ben. Speaking of glory, glory. Thank you. So here are the questions. We're going to ask, what does the gospel of glory accomplish? And we're going to look at verse 12 through 14 to see what the gospel of glory accomplishes. Then we're going to ask the question, what does, how does the gospel, or I'm sorry, how does the gospel of glory accomplish its work? And we're going to see that in verse 15, which I'm probably going to really just, I may lose my mind on verse 15. I may just, I may just shout. We'll see. Third question, why does the gospel of glory do its marvelous work? And then verse 17, what is the fruit of this gospel of glory and its production? So let's go back to the first question to help us unpack the text this morning. What does the gospel of glory 
accomplish. Well, I've got a few things I want us to see here. Let me go back and read verse 12 through 14. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. First thing I want us to note, and this is one that we could miss if we're not careful, what does the gospel of glory accomplish? The first thing I want you to see is this gospel of glory bursts the church and all of the churches that make up the church. We're reading 1 Timothy, remember, it takes us back to the introduction. And 1 Timothy is written to the church at Ephesus. And to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. So this gospel of glory, the glory of God, the blessed God that Paul has been entrusted with and we have been entrusted with, it bursts the church. The gospel causes the church to come into existence. This is important. The church just isn't a good idea. It's not man's idea of a civic club for Christians to gather in. It is the bride of Christ, the possession of Jesus that he purchased with his own blood. And this gospel of glory bursts, brings into existence the church, the people of God. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. And by grace to all the churches who are truly doing the church's work. The gospel bursts Big C Church, Church Universal, Church wherever the church is truly gathered. That is, believers who've trusted Christ, who've come after Jesus, baptized into the kingdom, being discipled in the faith, doing the mission of Christ. The gospel bursts the church. And by default, the church does gospel work, which is establishing more churches within the scope of the church which is the whole earth. The gospel bursts the church. And I I say this, and we say this a lot here, and it's super vital, and this is the reason we we try to say this, I try to make sure this comes out of my mouth. The church is not throwaway. The church is not optional. The church is not irrelevant. The church belongs to Jesus. We are the people of God, and therefore it is vital that we not throw away the bride of Christ as irrelevant. Because this gospel bursts the church. We talk about at Three Rivers Community Church, we talk about inside this fellowship, our culture being the radical life. People who have communion with God. That's what brings us together. We've seen the gospel. We've heard. We've, we've seen. We've had our spiritual eyes open to the truth of who Christ is. And by default, we are now members of God's kingdom. And we are together a body who's seen Christ and we've beheld His glory. And as a result, we have communion with God. That's what puts us together. There's no other reason for this eclectic group of people to be together other than we have seen the glory of God. And as a result, we've been made alive. We've been made family. And as a result, we gather. And so therefore, we have communion with God. And that communion produces community. We have fellowship with one another. We have common interests. 
And they're not just things we do together. Our common interest is the spiritual union we have in Christ. We share a vine. And we are all branches in that vine. And so we have community together. And as a community, we collide with culture. We seek to bring the measure of the gospel to bear on our culture. And so this gospel of glory bursts the church. And so this body's not irrelevant. This body is a powerful, mighty, spirit-empowered army advancing the kingdom of God into the dark corners of the earth. And that is exactly what we're doing. And we need one another. We are not irrelevant to one another. The gospel bursts the church. And the church is precious. And I hope as we study, like for last year, First John, and we talked about fellowship, and we talked about how vital fellowship is and the role of the church, I hope you see and understand and taste the vital nature of the bride of Christ. The kingdom of God is not advanced through civic organizations. She is the vehicle by which the gospel will go to all nations and the far-reaching corners of our town. It is the church that should launch these things. It is us who should be on the forefront of ministry. Because we as the bride of Christ have beheld glory. And together we're in communion, we're in community and we're colliding with our culture. Another thing I want you to see here from verse 13 is that the gospel transforms sinners into saints. The gospel transforms sinners into saints. Notice Paul's wording. He leaves verse 12. When he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, comma, though formerly. Though formerly. Though formerly. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. Though formerly. Though formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Those two words, though formerly, are absolutely essential and vital to who we are. Paul's identity was not what he used to be. Rather, his identity is what he was transformed to be. Paul's identity is not what he used to be. Though formerly, though formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul was a murderer. Paul fought against the church. And we know the story of his glorious transformation in the gospel on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him and he saw glory. And Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? And he bowed the knee He became a follower of Jesus Christ. And from that moment, the murderer, the blasphemer, the persecutor became a follower of Jesus. He would write in 2 Corinthians 5.17, We are new creatures. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And Joseph just referenced this. 
the key to fighting sin, the key to the church being the church, the key to us being together in community is that our identity is in Christ. That is who we are. We are people in Christ. My identity is no longer sinner. My identity is not what I am hung up on. My identity is saint, follower of Christ, child of God. People who struggle with sin issues have a tendency to be told by organizations who have good intentions, but methodologies that are poor. And they tell them the first step to fixing your problem is recognizing you have a problem and identifying yourself with that problem. I am an alcoholic, they teach you to say, or someone to say, or I am this, or I am that. No, you're not. We are saints who still have sin issues. But I am no longer what I used to be. Or 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a lie. I mean, these, these two words are massive. Though formerly. He didn't say, well, this persecutor, this blasphemer, this insolent opponent. Though formerly. Now I am this. The gospel does an awesome work of transforming sinners into saints. The gospel of glory releases us from our pre-Christ failures. It is a shame and a disgrace to hold each other over our past sins before we knew Christ. Because before we saw glory, before we beheld the glory of the gospel, we all fit into the category of sinner, fallen. But in Christ, we are now child of God, adopted into the kingdom. Saint, new creature. The gospel of glory takes a bunch of people, puts them together in a body, and re-identifies them as belonging to Jesus. This is why when we baptize, we baptize into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We take off Adam, we put on Christ. And if you have come to Christ, your identity, my identity is Christ's. That's who you are. That's what binds us together as family. This identity is so thick that when Jesus was told that his mother and brothers were outside, they wanted to have a word with him because they thought he was kind of going cuckoo. Jesus looked around the table and said, Who are my mother and my brothers? They're right here. This is my family. Our identity together makes us more family than the genes and DNA coursing through your veins right now. We are first a family together before we are a family with anyone outside of here. Have you ever thought about how holy that is? The gospel is so f powerful that it takes a bunch of people who are not genetically the same and makes us the same. Knits us together in the soul so that we are a family. The gospel of this glory of the blessed God transforms sinners into saints and knits us into the church. Another thing this gospel of the glory of the blessed God accomplishes is that this gospel of glory then overflows with grace with the grace of love and faith. The gospel of glory overflows with the grace of love and faith. Look at verse 14. And the grace of our Lord 
overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What's the grace of the Lord? It was faith and love in Christ Jesus. The gospel of glory overflowed with the grace of love and faith. I always find plurals and singulars pretty important grammatically. He doesn't say graces of love and faith. He says grace of love and faith. Meaning, when we see glory, the Lord overflows into us. Overflow meaning flowing over an abundance. Too much. An overflowing amount of love and faith. I get love, I get faith. Which is why in Galatians chapter 5, when talk, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit and then gives you a list. And then we go and then we misquote it. We say the fruits of the Spirit are. That's not what Paul said. He said the fruit of the Spirit is. And he gave you a list. I mean, you get all of it. It's there. It's accessible. He doesn't. Have to give me more patience. I have patience. My problem is I live in my flesh and I wrestle with sin. But patience is mine. It is mine to take and exercise. Right? He says here, this gospel overflowed with the grace of love and faith. Meaning, Father has given to Paul and he's given to us... The precious gifts of love and faith in an overflowing abundance. And Paul lets them know this former, this former blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent now has love and faith. I was the one who gave the authority to stone Stephen, but now love comes out of me, not rocks. Trust in the Lord comes out of me, not trust in the Sanhedrin. This gospel of glory overflows with the precious grace of love and faith. As much as Paul is an example of what Father can do for a sinner, Paul serves as an example of what real saints are. Contrasted with those who follow after the silly myths and endless genealogies. And according to verse 19, make a shipwreck of their faith. And so in some measure here, Paul is contrasting what a follower of Jesus looks like as opposed to those at the church of Ephesus who are now teaching wrong things and have shipwrecked their faith. Let me give you some of what those who have shipwrecked their faith look like. Those who have shipwrecked their faith... Apparently, according to what we studied in verse 3 through 7, needed something more than the gospel. They wanted to go deeper, so they took the genealogies and they took the myths coming off the names in those genealogies and sought for some spiritual truth that was deeper. And very simply refused to believe what was written. And their appetite was for this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in possessions. According to chapter 1, verse 6, they've wandered into vain discussions. They've wandered into discussions that are irrelevant and useless and meaningless to the advance of the kingdom of God. According to chapter 2, verse 11, they're not submissive 
Those who shipwreck their faith are not submissive. Pledge allegiance to our independence. They don't submit to anybody. I question everybody. They're not submissive. Those who shipwreck their faith devote themselves, according to chapter 4, verse 1, to deceitful spirits who teach through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. They've shipwrecked their faith by believing spiritual deception. Let me be super careful and not trail off into chapter 4 because we're not there yet. But you must be careful with your thinking. Not all thoughts that pass through your mind come from Jesus. Paul's writing to the church, addressing people in the church who've been deceived by demons, who've taught prophets and teachers who are teaching them. And remember, we looked all the way back to the beginning of this stuff. We looked in Acts where Paul addressed the elders at Ephesus and let them know from their own number will come wolves who will seek to devour. And now he's writing to this pastor and this church, letting them know, be careful. Deceitful things have entered your mind. And so those who shipwrecked their faith have believed demonic lies. Test the spirits. Test your thinking. These people who shipwrecked their faith and devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies, they're, according to chapter 4, verse 8, they're more concerned with their temporal existence than they are with eternal realities. We're going to have a really fun time when we get to that one. Train yourself for godliness. Paul's going to tell them. Physical training has some value, but godliness has value in this life and the life to come. So those who shipwrecked their faith have given an overabundance of their time to meaningless and useless pursuits rather than eternal pursuits. Those who have shipwrecked their faith also neglect their family. Paul's going to teach us when we get to chapter 5, verse 13 to 16, that you should care for your parents financially. And he says, those who don't do so are worse than unbelievers. They've denied the faith. So don't enroll a widow into the ministry of the church unless she's truly a widow. And if you've got a family member, Paul's going to tell you, you go and care for them. But those who've shoved their family off and said, you're less, you just go, you know, whatever. You shipwrecked their faith. Those who've shipwrecked their faith, according to chapter 6, verse 4, they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels, drama, love and drama, love drama. Can't wait for the next thing to get whispered into their ear about somebody else or what they don't like or what this person's doing or what this person's saying. Drama, drama, drama. Shipwrecked their faith. Constantly looking for something to quarrel and squabble about. Like disruption rather than peace. Shipwrecked faith. Those who shipwreck their faith, according to chapter 6, verse 9 to 10, they're driven by wanting more money. Their entire pursuit in life is because they love money more than Christ. And so Paul gives us here, in himself, a contrasting example to those who've shipwrecked their faith. Now here's the contrast. Chapter 12, or chapter 1, verse 12 through 17. Paul gives himself as an example of what the gospel does in building the church. It takes sinners and it transforms them into saints. 
Paul had his worldview rocked by the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And he wrote crazy things like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 to 18. If you would flip over there with me, because I, I want to read it for you, because it is so life-altering and transforming. I actually posted a little blog this week, since everybody was like immobilized by the storm. I typed out a passage from Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon called The Acid Test. And if you read the blog, and I think all three of you did, um, you're probably encouraged by that. And those of you who didn't don't have any clue what I'm talking about. So please go read it. It's a glorious piece of uh, work by Martin Lloyd-Jones on this passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18, as the acid test, the test of what it means to truly be Christian. Paul had his worldview rocked by the gospel. Now he's, he's giving us here in 1 Timothy, he's saying, this gospel, the glory, the blessed God with which I've been entrusted, here's what it's done. I thank God who's given me strength. And he's done all this glorious stuff in me. Letting them know that those who've shipwrecked their faith don't look like this. But those of us who've had our worldview rocked by this gospel of glory, this, this is kind of what we look like. Here's, here's what he says. This is crazy. This is mind-numbing. Listen to this. Paul writing to this church at Corinth. This is his now worldview. You ready for this? I hope you can handle this. It's still rocking my world. Now remember, Paul's been shipwrecked, beaten, imprisoned, flogged, imprisoned again, flogged, beaten, shipwrecked, flogged, beaten, imprisoned, no clothes, no money, no job. I mean, he's working. He's bi-vocational. In our ministry context, he's a failure because he doesn't have a real church, right? He don't have a health plan. He, you know, he don't got, he's nothing. And listen to what Kat's writing. If we were Paul, we would be chief complainers. And listen to what, this is worldview's been rocked. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Wow. Those who shipwreck their faith don't think like that. People who are truly not part of the church don't think like that. Pretenders don't think like that. Weeds don't think like that. Branches think like that. Because the vine puts that in them. He's had his world view rocked by the gospel. He is a child of God, a member of the church of God, following after Christ. Paul's harsh hardships are viewed as momentary and light. From eternity's perspective, this difficulty is nothing. Light. Child's play. Beat me again. And I can hear Jesus' words echoing, fear not those who can kill the body. I'll tell you who to fear. His hardships are viewed as momentary and light. Nothing. 
Paul views his hardships as preparing him for an eternal weight of glory. These hardships are training him to be able to behold glory forever. Ezekiel could only stand a moment before he fell down to worship of a glimpse of glory. And Paul says these momentary light afflictions are training me to be able to behold glory forever. Giving great understanding and meaning to pain. It's not worthless. It's not useless. It's training. It's the Lord pruning off bad things so I can bear more fruit. This is good for me. Is that what you cry out in praise when things go wrong? Wow. This is Paul. Worldview rocked by the gospel. By the way, this is what the church looks like. Paul said he looks to the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. He's measuring the unseen realities, not the things that he sees here. They're temporal. They're transient. And it goes all the way back to what I, I said at the beginning of this little point here. As much as Paul's an example of what the Father can do for a sinner, he serves as an example of what real saints look like, contrasted with those who shipwreck their faith. We're all supposed to think like that. That is the Christian worldview. That is how we approach all things. These light, momentary, temporal difficulties are nothing. They're preparing me for glory. The sovereign vine dresser is pruning me because he loves me. And he's preparing me to be able to behold glory forever. This is wonderful. This is the difference between those who shipwreck their faith and those who truly make up the church. Well, the gospel of glory, A, B, C, D. That's number four. See, I don't, my notes are weird. Like, I'm just strange. Dyslexic people do things backward. But point one is what does the gospel of glory accomplish? And I gave you A, B, C, D, which would be the fourth thing here. The gospel of glory takes saints and makes them servants of the great cause of Christ. So Paul says here, verse 12, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful appointing me to His service. This gospel takes saints and then He makes them servants of the great cause of Jesus Christ. Listen, church. This is the thing about the church. All of us, all of us are needful for the mission. There are no irrelevant parts. There are none of us who don't fit in the mission. The gospel takes saints And makes them servants of the great cause of Christ. He said, I thank Him who's given me strength. Christ Jesus. Who gave Him strength? Jesus gave Him strength. Why? Because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Listen to this. That applies to all of you. If you have believed the gospel, He's judged you faithful and He's appointed you to service. You hear us say this a lot as well. This is why we talk about being together in community. Why you need to be in a connect group. Why you need to be with other believers. Because that's where you serve. And some of us get the privilege of serving here on Sunday mornings. You get to come and set up chairs. How vital and important is that? Because if nobody set up chairs, you'd be sitting in the floor. And that's not real comfortable because we don't do that in our culture, right? Our legs get numb if we sit on the floor too long, right? And you all be like dead legs right now. You couldn't even stand up. Nobody's irrelevant. We're all equally vital because He's appointed us to His service in the great cause of Christ. I need to move on. 
Question number two, how does the gospel of glory accomplish this great work? How is it that this gospel of glory accomplishes these, these few things we've just mentioned here? Well, verse 15 answers the question. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. How does the gospel of glory accomplish its work? The gospel saves sinners. That's how. How does the gospel produce the church? How does the gospel do these marvelous, wonderful things, transforming sinners into saints? How does the gospel give us abundant faith and love? How does the gospel make us all servants of the great cause? It does so by saving sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Being redundant, but it's important. You see, we were born with Adam's name. We had the guilt and stain of Adam imputed to us due to the fall. Yet Jesus, the Creator, comes and takes on flesh and He does the most amazing thing. He dies in our place for our sin and rises that He may justify us. That He may justify us. Forgiveness is only half the work of salvation. Jesus wipes us clean. And then he credits us his perfection. I cannot, nor will I ever be able to get past the glorious doctrine of justification. Hex, Paul spends 11 chapters of Romans on it. Paul can't get past it either. Jesus saves sinners. How does he save sinners? He doesn't just forgive us. That's only half the work of salvation. He then justifies us. Justification is this instantaneous legal act of God in which He thinks of our sins as forgiven and then imputing fully, completely, altogether giving to us the righteousness of Christ and declaring us to be right in His sight. If you fully understood the magnitude of that, we would fall down in Ezekiel 1 fashion and worship. Do you, do you understand the implication of that for you and I today? We no longer have to believe in karma. What goes around because... Listen. He saves sinners. He forgives. He wipes the slate clean. He takes away Adam's guilt. But then He doesn't just leave me a clean slate. Jesus doesn't give you a clean slate. If you say that, please don't ever say that again. He doesn't give you a clean slate. He wipes your slate clean and He puts in you His perfection. He credits it to your account so that when God looks at you, He doesn't say, oh, sinner, I'll be gracious. He looks at, ah, child, son, perfect. He credits you with the righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul says things like, I'll boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because at the cross, there was a great exchange that took place. God saves sinners. He takes sinners and gives them the righteousness of Christ. We no longer have to believe in karma. Listen, what goes around will never come around. What goes around is never going to have to come around. Life's difficulties are never... I want you to hear this. If you've heard nothing else, hear this. Life's difficulties are never God getting even for that thing we did. God saves sinners. Rather... Our good Father graciously prunes our deadness off to make us more fruitful. He will never get even. We are even. 
He just prunes me for my good and His glory. I'll never have to work to get the Father's favor. I have it perfectly. You have it perfectly. And therefore we work because we can't help it. It just happens. It just happens. He saves sinners. Question number three. Why does the gospel of glory do its marvelous work? Let's look at verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason. Oh, why did I receive mercy? This reason. Let's see what that reason is. That in me... As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Why did the Lord do this glorious gospel work in Paul and in us? So that He may put the Father's perfect patience on display in saving the worst case as easily as the less case. I want you to hear this very carefully. There is, and I even, I chose those words carefully. And I even am not sure I chose, even now I'm not sure I chose the right words. Because we have a tendency to think that, we have a tendency to think somehow that some people may think that God just can't fix that. He can't heal that. He can't forgive or justify that. Paul says here, I was a blasphemer, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And he says that I received mercy for this reason, that as the foremost, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says I was an example. In other words, if Jesus can justify a murderer, He can and will justify anyone who comes to Him by faith. Listen to this very carefully. There is nothing you have done that He can't take care of. And if you're in Christ, there's nothing you've done that He hasn't already taken care of. And if you came here thinking today that God can't forgive you and He can't justify you, I would say to you, repent of that horrible, nasty, evil, unbelieving thought and come to Christ and receive mercy and grace because He saves the hardest cases as easy as the less hard cases. And the reality is we're all pretty hard cases. But Jesus specializes in taking the Pauls and making them saints. And if He can make a Paul a saint, what in the world can He do with us? Why does the gospel do this glorious work as displays of God's patience? You know what you are? You're a glorious display of the patience of Jesus Christ. That's what you are. He's been merciful to you. And you walk around as a display of patience. Look at him. I love the little song kids used to sing. I, I, I sing this a lot. I don't really sing it because you would never come back. But he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working. You're a, you're a walking display of the loving patience of God. That's what you are. Fourth and finally, and this is where we're going to wrap up and kind of bring ourselves to, I hope, a verse 17 crescendo of praise this morning. What fruit does the gospel of this glory of the blessed God produce in Paul in this text? What well, produces doxology? It produces praise. It's in verse 17. It, it, I think this is fitting. It's, fit, it's obviously fitting. It's in the text, but, but, but it... 
it's fitting for more reasons than it's in the text. And I think it's fitting for us this morning because we say this here and we have a hard time practicing this. We're all a little more thinker-driven, I think, in our, just who we are. Our DNA, our makeup is a little more, I don't know. I mean, I'm just shut up. We have a tendency, and I think this is just part of our, we just, we're fallen creatures and we all wrestle. I have a hard time going sometimes from my thinking to my emoting. That's just me, okay? And I think that's a lot of us. But Paul goes from this glorious meditation on what this gospel of glory has done to him to verse 17 praise. He moves from what's going on in this to an external working out of praise given to God. What fruit does the gospel of glory produce in Paul and in, in, in us and in the church? What produces praise? It's exactly what it does. Listen, church. Right thinking on God must lead to right worship of God. Right thinking on God must take the next step to right praise of Him. Making much of Him. Delighting in Him. And it's not... It is the life you live, but it is also the song you sing. We have 150 of them in the middle of our Bible where they worked out this truth of God worked out in praise. Paul says here, verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortable, immortable. (laughs) I just created a word for you. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul comes to the end of this meditation on what he is and what all of us are to be in Christ because we are in Christ. And he ends with praise. Notice he says here, to. To. Paul is addressing his worship to the Lord. To the King of the ages. He turns his attention from addressing the people to the Lord. He turns his attention off of them up to the Lord. He goes from thinking and thinking with them on this truth now to lifting his gaze up and addressing the Lord. You know what I want you to do in just a moment? I want you to make the transition in your soul and your body from looking here to looking up. And if you need to physically lift your head and look at ceiling tiles to help you lift your soul from what we are thinking on to meditating now on and expressing outward, do it. But he says now to the king of the ages. He now shifts the direction of what's coming out of him. What we're going to do in a moment as we worship is we shift the direction of what's going on. You're paying attention hopefully. Some of you maybe not. You're checked out. You're thinking of something else. But maybe a few of you are still, you're dialed in here. Now what I want you to do is don't dial in here anymore. Dial in up here. Lift your attention to the Lord. Seek to gaze upon him. Think on the scriptures we've read this morning. Let your imagination with the leadership of the Spirit think on Christ. To Him. Lift your gaze. He says, to the King of the ages. Paul acknowledges who's in control and what he is in control over. He lifts his gaze to the King of the ages, the one who rules time. He rules time. He rules your days. 
He ruled Paul's days. Do you think it was just chance that Jesus knocked him off of his mission to go persecute more Christians? Was it Jesus like, oh, I guess I better get engaged. Paul's going to get more of my church. Huh, I guess I'll step down there and do something. No! He's the king of the ages. In due time, at the right moment, when Jesus decided to save Paul, Jesus saved him. Listen, man, you, you just meditate a little bit on your life. Patrick Bauer and I, we're standing at the back this morning, and we're just meditating. He asked me a question, and that led to, we were just talking on how the Lord's always been faithful. He has never, ever, ever failed to reward faithful behavior. He's the king of the ages. At just the right moment, at just the right time, things worked out just the right way so that we had just what we needed to stay on task. To the king of the ages. He's in control. He rules our time. Immortal. Paul acknowledges that the king is not a human king. But he's the king who has no beginning and he has no end. He is the end all and he is the be all. To the king of the ages, immortal. We serve a king who has no beginning and has no end. And he's coming again. He reigns today and we will see his reign visibly one day. To the king invisible. Paul acknowledges that the king is greater than what we with unregenerate eyes can behold. He is seen by faith. The only God. Paul acknowledges there's no other allegiance, no other God. There's nothing competing for the Lord's allegiance in his life. Be. Be. Paul has turned his attention from them to the Lord. And he's addressed him in all these glorious attributes. He's pouring out to him. And then he says, be. Be. Paul's now exulting. I don't have language to communicate this. <laughs> Just the word be. <laughs> He's gone from, I'm not looking at you, I'm now to the king of the ages. And he just extols some of his attributes and tells him how awesome he is. And, and then he starts exulting. Just <sighs> Paul's not exulting. His direction is set. He's pointed in the right place. His heart is set on the Lord. And what does his exulting look like? Honor. Paul exalts deference to. He defers to the king of the ages. <laughs> you, you rule my day, please. Here. Here's my schedule. Whatever you want to do with it. Gives him honor. He defers to the king of the ages. Glory. Paul reflects in his image-bearing glory back to its source in words, emotions, actions, and a million unmentionable glories. Forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Truly. Paul ends his doxology with a simple yet powerful Bible word, amen. Truly, so be it. So you want to invite you to this morning as a bunch of redeemed, transformed branches hanging out in the vine. I want to invite you to truly, truly come and exult in setting your gaze upon Christ 
and pour back to Him all the immeasurable glories from every possible nook and cranny of your soul back up to Him as praise. And you know what? I'm just foolish enough to believe that the Spirit of God can direct that in you as these guys lead us. So you pray with me? Father, we are Your people. And Father, not just we, but all those today gathered globally who have come to make much of Jesus whether they're under a tin roof, a mud, in a mud hut, or under a tree, or in a house, trying to be quiet so the bad guys can't hear, or whether we're gathered in a school or in another building of some sort, Lord, there's people all over today gathered to make much of you. And so, Lord, I pray now that you, you would receive what we bring to you. That as we seek to turn our gaze up to you and turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, would you let the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? Would you remove every distraction of mind and environment and let us as people who've been transformed by this glorious gospel of the blessed God gaze upon you for a few minutes And would you receive what we bring to you as pleasing? Would you receive what we bring to you as glorious? Would you receive what we bring to you as enjoyable? And as we sing and we reflect back to you, we pray that you would sing over us. That Zephaniah 3.17 would be a reality we could taste and experience that... You sing over us and we sing to you and you glory in us and we glory in you. And may that be the attitude of this fellowship. So as we look to what it is to be the church, that it will be done as a group of people with our gaze on you, exalting back to you all the glories of the gospel that have been at work in us. Receive our praise now, we pray in Jesus' name.